Hello, and welcome back to yet another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. This podcast was recorded on August 11th, 2017 at 11.20am GMT. So, as always, if there have been any significant events which took place in the time after recording, we're obviously unable to cover them in our discussion. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, be sure to have a listen to our previous episodes in this series. For further information about these and uh, these previous and upcoming podcasts or anything else we do here at the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre, be sure to check out our website, ueluk terc There you can find out information about our MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, our Terrorism and Extremism book series with IB Taurus, and so much more. Also, for the most up-to-date information, be sure to follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and to tweet, a, tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. But first, it's time for today's guest. Javier Argomenes is a lecturer at the University of St. Andrews Handa Centre for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence, where he has published widely on the subject of state, non-state and civilian responses to political violence. His work has appeared in Terrorism and Political Violence, Studies in Conflict and Terrorism, Cooperation and Conflict, Intelligence and National Security, and a number of other peer-reviewed journals. He has co-directed two separate international and multidisciplinary projects funded by the EU on the needs of victims of terrorism, a really under-researched topic, and the role of victims and former perpetrators in the prevention of conflict. Javier is the author of of Post-9-11, European Union Counterterrorism, Politics, Polity and Policies, published by Routledge in 2011, and co-author and contributor to Victims of Terrorism, a comparative and interdisciplinary study, again published by Routledge, this time in 2014. Also co-author of International Perspectives on Terrorism Victimization, an interdisciplinary approach from 2015, published by Palgrave. And in 2016, he published with Routledge, EU Counterterrorism and Intelligence, a critical assessment. Welcome to the pod, Javier. Thanks for joining us. Um, Hi, John. Great to be here. Um, Thank you for having me. No problem. No problem. First question, how did you get interested in this area of research? What was it that drew you to studying terrorism, counterterrorism, the role of victims and so on? What was it that drew you in? Um, well, as, as you know, I'm originally from Basque Country, so um, growing up one would become quite, quite an expert on terrorism just by reading the local news. Um, but um, I, I must say that, that my PhD at, at Nottingham, it wasn't really about ETA. Uh, I started it the same year of the Madrid attacks, um, and the project was about the European Union as a counter-terror actor. Um, I remember after 9-11, especially after the Madrid bombings, uh, in the news uh, about the frequent meetings at the EU level on terrorism, and I found that puzzling. Um, Traditionally, when we talk about the EU, it was always about the economy, the common market, and so on, maybe a bit of foreign policy, and that was that. So I was asking myself, uh, why is the EU working on this at all? This is sensitive, it's terrorism, that's a job of national governments. So my PSD was, was trying to determine why the EU had become an important counter-terror actor, how and why it was an issue of effectively. So I would say that was my starting point in, in my career. And you can see this in the publications of yours that we're going, to, we're going to discuss later on, especially in your piece for European security uh, entitled Post-9-11 Institutionalization of European Union Counterterrorism. I think for... You have a similar experience to a lot of people in terrorism research being uh, directly affected by uh, attacks in your own country or a a history of terrorism in in your own country or the region that you grew up in as well. Um, But looking at it from that uh, that perspective, uh, at an EU perspective, did did you find at that time that you could see the EU changing in its remit? Yeah, I mean, I, I was what I was seeing in my research is that the EU was doing much more than most terrorist scholars knew or were willing to give it credit for. Um, 
And I didn't think this was ideological. Um, this is not that national governments were bringing the EU in to move forward with European integration or anything. Uh, they were doing this because they had to, because they realized that the had this terrorism international, that militants were taking advantage of freedom of movement, that they were uh, traveling across borders, were establishing, li establishing links throughout Europe. So member states started to cooperate at the European level because they had no other option uh, if they wanted to tackle the problem. And I just felt that it was a very interesting development that wasn't really being covered by uh, traditional terrorism scholars within the, the field. Yeah, I, actually, I planned to, to talk about your articles at the end of the discussion, but I think with the way our, our chat is going now, we might as well talk about that um, that first piece that you've put forward. Sorry to, to just land this on you now. I know previous to the pod we had said we'd discuss this later, but it just it just seems to fit. Um, what, so what was happening in the EU in relation to counterterrorism pre-Madrid bombing, pre-9-11, pre-7-7? What, what did the EU look like as a counterterrorism actor? Or was should it have been considered a counterterrorism actor prior to that? Well, I would say that uh, that it, it was a very minor actor. It was barely engaged with that uh, topic. Uh, Counterterrorism in Europe was seen widely as a national prerogative, and some some member states were trying to Europeanize the the issue, like like Spain, uh, but that. It, the, the vast majority of, of member states thought that that you know the EU had no, should had nothing to do with with that. Uh, but what we see is that in the post 9/11 uh, period, um, from being a nobody in this area, in just five years, the EU became a critical actor in the fight against terrorism in Europe. And I think that's a, a story worth telling. And so, what were the main changes? What were the main changes that took place? Well, uh, what we saw is that, uh, for a start, like huge institutional development. So we observed the appearance of a large number of uh, groups, actors, and platforms within Europe, that are within the European Union, that are created to address different aspects of the problem. Or we see organizations with competences in justice and home affairs, like Europol, that they start establishing their own counter-terror units. Even the commission, um, who is mainly the guarantor of the common market and his remit traditionally is being uh, the economy, even the commission was created its own um, city unit uh, within the organization. So uh, we see a massive institutional change. Uh, we also see that this, this comes together with an overarching counter-terror strategy, which is based on the British one, and literally hundreds of new measures. I mean, if we look at the counter-terror action plan after Madrid, it had almost 200 new policies. It was about like 175, but it's, um, it's, very, it's very dramatic change. And so practically speaking, what type of changes were there? Are you talking about the European arrest warrant, the European evidence warrant? What, what, type, of, what type of practical measures were being put in place or needed to be put in place around this time? Yeah, absolutely. As you uh, mentioned, the European arrest warrant is a fundamental innovation. It really is a game changer. It facilitates the extradition of um, suspects uh, from one country to the other enormously, but there's also a common definition uh, agreed at the EU level, and this is the first international uh, definition uh, on uh, terrorism um, that actually has very important practical uh, impact because it, it leads to uh, other uh, governments that had no legislation on this subject because it hadn't been affected uh, by the problem in, in the past to introduce uh, new laws. So there's a Europeanization of uh, counter-terror uh, legislation. And there is an, an effort to uh, increase uh, the level of uh, data 
an intelligence exchange across the board that is quite substantial. And so are we talking here just about counterterrorism legislation and um, and practical applications across the EU in relation to transnational terrorism or did this affect ongoing uh, national uh, terrorism? We think obviously of the Basque country where you're from or we think of Ireland where I'm from. Was it were these new legislations, were, was it affecting, countering these kinds of uh, terrorist activity? This, this new counter-terror legislation tends to be more, um, say, more uh, important or influential on those countries that hadn't had uh, uh, a history of terrorism. Because what we find in the UK or in Spain or even France is that there was already a highly developed counter-terror legislation. So basically what they do, these countries, the major players in the field, is that they, they upload their practices to the European level. And those countries uh, that had no experience with the, with the problem, they end up learning from these big players. And it is, it is important because we see countries like Norway or Belgium that had very little uh, pre-9-11 experience with terrorism, but they've been affected by the problem significantly in the post-9-11 period. And so do you think it's been effective? It's been effective. Well, that is, um, that is a question. Um, <laughs> I, what I argued, actually, is that um, one problem with uh, how the European Union was developing as, um, as a counter-terror uh, actor is that um, there wasn't much coherence to what they were doing. So there was like a huge increase of the number of measures that clog up the decision-making pipeline. And there was like a massive increase of institutional actors that weren't that well coordinated. So that, that means that the initial uh, response that the European Union had was uh, relatively uh, incoherent. I mean, things have improved quite uh, substantially. Um, it is true that uh, the EU counter-terror coordinator doesn't have that, man, that many competences, uh, but he is doing, he's, he's doing a, a great job o- over the last few years. The situation now is far better than it was in, in the past, but uh, it was important to argue that coherence uh, affects effectiveness. An incoherent response is an ineffective response. Okay, so... Has this actually affected uh, individual na- uh, nations' counterterrorism policies and strategies? Has it been uh, more about an integration or and harmonization, or is it more cooperation and coordinate coordination that we've seen? Yeah, um, it's. Um, I would say that it's been more uh, cooperation and coordination. Uh, we've seen some um, some integration, some. Uh, harmonization of, of laws, as I mentioned, with the common definition of terrorism and so on. But mainly the goal has been to get uh, European national authorities to work together better, to transfer more data and more intelligence, to exchange best practices, um, to establish uh, networks of practitioners and improve our working relationships. Uh, the member states have been, especially the big, the large member states have been reluctant to go much farther than that. Following Madrid, there was a proposal by the Belgians and the Austrians to create a European CIA, mm-hmm. a supranational intelligence agency, and that was shut down like um, um, in, in, in a minute. Uh, that was something that large member states were not willing to discuss because obviously intelligence is something that uh, they invest 
massive amounts of resources in, um, and they're very uh, uh, cautious about uh, potential free riding. So there are there have been red lines that haven't been crossed, and I don't think they will be crossed in the near future. And so, when considering this, when considering European Union-led counterterrorism, what's the engagement like with? other actors, say with the United States, Canada, Australia, Pakistan, Japan, other countries, when they're trying to coordinate uh, investigation strategies, how, uh, how has that worked? Or is it still, uh, or is that coordination at a national level still when it's dealing with uh, non-EU actors? Hmm. Yeah, the European Union has done some interesting uh, international work, perhaps is a bit less Develop, develop than the intra-Europe uh, work, but it's been there's been quite an expansion in recent years. Um, there's been some agreements being signed with yeah countries like like Pakistan and many countries, and 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 also uh, cooperation with the African Union and other uh, bilateral. Um, uh, initiatives with North African countries. Uh, but it's, it's clear that the EU main partner in this area is the US. Uh, in fact, I, I wrote in, it was uh, in 2009, an, an article where um, I, I argued that uh, in a way uh, the EU is internalizing uh, the measures and the initiatives that are being that the EU have has, that the US has been promoted in this area. So the the US has been um, moving forward, and and the EU has been uh, following on its steps uh, regarding, especially in a number of fields like aviation security. Okay, I think though the main question that everyone listening to this is asking: you're you're sitting in Scotland, I'm sitting here in England. How is Brexit going to affect this, or will it, or do we know yet? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question, isn't it? Um, it is a bit uncertain because um, we don't really know what sort of agreement between the UK and the EU will result from the negotiations. Whether uh, there will be access to the common markets, whether the European Court of Justice rulings will have to be uh, adopted by UK national courts. So there is a lot that we don't know just yet. What we can say is that um, UK leaving this field will have an, an important impact on European cooperation in this area. I mean, 50%, almost 50% of the data that Europol works with comes from uh, Britain. Um, is um, the intelligence capabilities that the UK has uh, far more advanced than any other countries in, in Europe. Uh, but it is, it is clear that the UK government still sees cooperation in counterterrorism as a priority. Even if uh, the UK is not part of the European Union, uh, there will still be mechanisms in place for UK to contribute to the fight against terrorism in Europe and also for the UK to be supported in their fight by other countries in the European Union. I suppose it's as with everything in relation to Brexit, we'll just have to have to wait and see, I suppose. But that's that discussion started off with how you first got involved in uh, in this area of, of research. You were talking about starting your PhD around the time of the Madrid bombings, how you're growing up in the in the Basque region. But when it comes to looking at terrorism literature, who were the authors or what were the pieces that uh, that influenced you? Um, you? I've asked you to, to list three which are up on our website and people can search for. So what's the first one? Hmm. Yeah, well, the, the first one would be uh, Martha Crenshaw's uh, book in 2011, explaining terrorism. Um, I know that that's not going to that's not going to surprise anybody to include her in that in that shortlist. Um, so um, I, I guess my influences are the same than than for most other people in in the field, scholars like Bruce Hoffman and and and, and Martha Crenshaw. 
Uh, I would say that Martha Crenshaw is arguably the, the leading, most innovative thinker on the study of terrorism. Um, I would actually make the argument that, that the questions we're pondering now were answered by Crenshaw 30 years ago. I mean, and, and that's, that's why I, I, liked, I, I, I wanted to highlight her 2011 book so, so much, because this book is fantastic. It's just, it's, it's a kind of greatest hits compilation, like it includes her more, most important works. And I feel that this should be required reading for anyone with a passing interest in, in the discipline. Now, I, I actually think that she is, um, she's not the only scholar in terrorism studies who had this, this kind of, of compilation. Uh, actually, you know what, Ted Gore, uh, he also had like a similar volume published in, in 2015, um, Political Rebellion, but yeah, I mean, it just, it just speaks volumes that that you know that she she um it, it, it was considered that if uh, that put together her most important contributions in one volume would have interest so many people in the field. And was there any particular contribution or any particular idea of hers that that would have uh, been most influential to you? Well, uh, it's hard to say. Um, it's difficult to pick one particular uh, idea or notion. I really like um, her findings or insights on organizations and organizational theory. I mean, um, you know, obviously everyone knows about uh, Mia Bloom's work uh, with uh, Outbidding and, and how she applied really effectively to the uh, to the Palestinian context. I mean, she's, she's done some fantastic work, but, uh, but Martha, Martha Krenzel herself was using that concept like 20 years ago, uh, or even longer. Like I think that the, the article was published in the, in the early, early 90s. So, um, you know, she was already uh, um, bringing to our attention the importance of that, that specific uh, dynamic before it was uh, revisited very effectively, I must say, as, uh, as I said, um, uh, by other authors years years later. Uh, yeah, and it, around the time that she was writing that, you had other people like K.L. Lutz, who was writing on organizational theory, applying it to terrorism as well. But I, th I think you're right, though. You'll see the influence of Martha Crenshaw in so many people's works. And as you said, it wouldn't be a surprise to, to anyone that you're, you're citing her works as, uh, as influential to your own. So that's, uh, that's Martha's works. Uh, who else and what other research was influencing you? Hmm. Well, when I was starting as an academic, like well, after I finished my, my PhD and I was saying, you know, I, I was starting to, to develop my, my career, I was really inspired by the work of John Horgan. Again, like a very unsurprising choice. I, 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 I think that, that, that he is one of the most uh, innovative and influential uh, scholars in, in the field. I mean, his, his books on the psychology of terrorism walking away from terrorism, they are two very important works. They broke new grounds. I think, didn't he write one after the other? Um, yeah. Yeah, he did, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Walking Away in particular is a fantastic book. I mean, he, he took what well, was a very original question uh, that I don't really think anyone had answered before, like at least not convincingly. So he looked at this question, what makes people leave terrorist groups? And he answered it in a, in a very effective manner. He went out and actually interviewed former militants. He posed that question to them. So uh, I, I think this, this book works really well insofar it shows that it is possible to use interviews to investigate individual militants' thought processes and to do it in a scientifically and ethically rigorous manner. You know, I get why some would argue that Finding data is one of the challenges within terrorism studies, but John Horgan demonstrated here that that you you could do it, that it's, it was possible, and that uh, you could do it in a highly effective manner, where you could uh, collect the data, but you could apply the concepts that uh, from from psychology in order to make sense uh, of this information, and in order to provide 
uh, a number of fundamental insights um, um, to, the, to the field. I mean, if I'm not wrong, this is the piece that made the crucial distinction between de-radicalization and disengagement and the systems. And this is a crucial contribution. I don't know if, if the book came before the, the article, but I mean, if only from that particular uh, contribution, this would be required reading by, for, for anyone interested in radicalization. Yeah, I, I, I guess it's no surprise to you or to anyone else that uh, John's work greatly inspired and influenced my, re- my research as well. Um, and I think you can see that in so many people. Just last week, I was talking to your former colleague, uh, Sarah Marsden, about her book about reintegration and disengagement and so on. And clearly it was having an influence on her work and on others' work uh, since then. And you said uh, at the beginning, it was a really original question to pose. And for anyone who's starting off in terrorism studies now, they probably think, well, everyone's asking that. There are so many people asking that question now. It's not original. But at the time, it really was. There was no one uh, or very few talking about that at the time. So I, I'm, uh, I'm in complete agreement with you that, uh, that it's, it's a great piece of work. It's really worthwhile. You mentioned there that he partook in the research ethically. Why do you feel that that's important? Well, this is something that um, that we're putting a lot of thought uh, in, in in terrorism studies, but also within the, the center, especially because we, um, as, as you know, we have this, this master program on, on terrorism studies, and we want to encourage, uh, you know, the new uh, scholars in, in the field to um, uh, contribute to our understanding of the subject uh, by doing uh, good research that collects primary data and is also informed theoretically. And for us, it's fundamental to ensure that these uh, sort of initial research projects that uh, you know these young um, you know uh, researchers are are doing. Uh, meet all their requirements uh, that are uh, um, that are uh, un- understood uh, generally in uh, with regards to uh, scientific research. That it need that 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 kind of of research need to meet uh, a number of ethical requirements in order to be acceptable. So for us, it's uh, essential to inculcate the importance of uh, ethics to these uh, new scholars who very soon will be contributing to our understanding uh, of, the, of terrorism. Yeah, and I know it's a, it's a topic that's, that's very close to the heart of your colleague Jeffrey Muir, who we'll be talking about in, in future weeks as well. And it, I agree with you, if, if this area of study is to be taken seriously and to be, uh, to be considered uh, as as strong academic research we need to to have a, a significant discussion about ethics i think it's one that's that's probably missing a good bit from our literature uh, from our writings and our, from our research and what's the so that's uh, martha crenshaw and john horgan's works um what's the final piece that you've decided to to pick for this podcast yeah, perhaps the most recent influence that I, I would say has inspired me is uh, the work by Erika Shenoweth and Maria Stefan, uh, the, the, their book on why civil resistance works. Uh, I, I think it's a, it's a brilliant addition to the field. Um, uh, I believe uh, that it's really very hard to find a book with a more important argument or message. I mean, the finding that nonviolent resistance campaigns are more effective than violent ones, and it has enormous academic and practical implications. Um, is um, I, I I struggle to think of any uh, recent uh, work whose um, uh, insights are more significant, um, and and it has strongly influenced my current interest. I credit this book for being the direct inspiration for my current work in civil resistance, nonviolent action from a past perspective. I, I just 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 felt that this is something we, we, we needed to know more about, um, given the important implications of this type of research. Did these findings surprise you? Um, 
But that's a very good question. You know, I actually, maybe it's not the fact that uh, the findings surprised me, is that I never saw the question that way. So when, and, and neither did anybody else within the terrorism studies field. Um, like if you look at the works that examine the effectiveness of terrorism, like most of them go through what these organizations have achieved politically over the years and try to make an assessment based on that um, analysis. But their approach was highly original. What they said is that, well, most of these terrorist organizations are part of broader movements and, and we see similar movements uh, emerging uh, in, in, in the same or in other contexts. Uh, what about uh, if we check whether those campaigns that were non-violent were actually more effective in achieving those political goals that those uh, uh, violent organizations were trying to, to reach. Uh, because it just shows that um, for a political movement to be successful, actually uh, uh, moving towards a violent uh, path maybe uh, may detract from the possibilities of the success of the of the movement, and I think that's 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 the, the sort of, of finding that has massive practical implications. And I like from the, from that answer there, it's it's clear I can see now why these three authors or these three pieces of work influenced you. It's not always about their findings, but it's about the way they it's about the questions they pose and that they're thinking about things in slightly different way than others would have. Thinking whether it's Martha Crenshaw in the early days of terrorism research or John Horgan and, Mar and Erica Chenowitz and Maria Stefan more recently. Would I be right in saying that the, uh, part of the influence is, is about the question as well as the findings? I think that's absolutely right. I, I never seen it that, that way, but uh, yeah, I, I think you, you hit the, the nail on, on, on the head. Uh, in the terrorism studies, it's a relatively uh, young field that there's still uh, interesting questions that need to be addressed, and we haven't done it yet. And, and these, these um, authors uh, certainly uh, achieved that. They, uh, they brought to our attention questions that are important, but we weren't considering in the past. And those were, those are huge contributions to the field. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's something that, that as a starting point, we all need to think about. It's not just what are we going to go and find? We have to think of a way to really, um, to really fine tune our questions and to come up with questions that really need to be answered. So that's other people's research who's, who's, which has influenced you. We talked earlier on about uh, your PhD research looking at uh, EU counterterrorism and the way that that evolved uh, in a pre and post 9-11 era. Um, but you, you mentioned at the beginning that you're, you grew up and you're from the, the Basque region and you can see that influencing the final two pieces of work that we're going to focus on here and both um, looking at, uh, at the case of ETA, but from very different perspectives. One article is looking at uh, the battle of narratives and the role that the Spanish victims organizations uh, played in delegitimizing um, terrorism and political violence. And the other one is exam looking at it from a counterterrorism point of view, examining deterrence and backlash effects in counterterrorism, the case of ETA. But before we go into those pieces of work, um, this, this is probably going to be the toughest question I ask you. For some of our listeners who mightn't have a good understanding about, about ETA or the Basque separatist uh, movement, could you give a, a brief synopsis of uh, what it was about, what they were trying to achieve, and where we are now with it? Okay, well, Escarita, um, Escatasuna, or better, better um, um, known as, as ETA, it was an organization that was born in 1959, so it was during the, uh, the Franco regime, uh, under the uh, Franco dictatorship, um, and its uh, political goal was independence for the Basque country, um, 
not only the three provinces uh, in the past region, but also for Navarra, which is a different province in Spain, and the three uh, uh, provinces in the French Basque Country. Uh, it's like uh, for most of, of the first decade, uh, they weren't really very uh, violent. It was more uh, about symbolic acts and, and some individual acts of, of sabotage. But uh, starting in the mid-70s, they, um, uh, they initiate uh, their violent campaign. It was, I speak, uh, during the transition from the dictatorships to a democratic uh, system in, in Spain, so from 1977 to 1980. 1980 is a, is a, high, is a peak of, of his campaign, where Eta kills uh, about 100 people uh, in just, one, in just a, that year. Um, so, um, and from then on, it's, uh, it's uh, a, long, a long decline that accelerates uh, from the 1990s. Uh, Eta was still very active in, in the 19, 1980s, but uh, from 1992, uh, we see the, the Spanish authorities uh, uh, having the upper hand, and, and from then uh, we observe uh, a long and painful uh, decline for the organization. And so they're uh, completely, um, they've put their arms beyond use, they're permanent ceasefire now? Yeah, in 2011 they uh, announced an indefinite ceasefire, and a few, a few weeks ago they uh, they lay, lay down their, their arms, they gave away their, uh, their caches that they, they possess. Um, and really the last step to take is their dissolution as an organization. Uh, but we are still waiting for that, that final step. Okay. And so you mentioned there we had years like 1980 where 100 people uh, killed by ETA. We've had... Uh, a great number of victims at the hands of their violence. However, when we look at your article, A Battle of Narratives, um, you were talking about um, how there's an international campaign now to legitimize, um, legitimize them as a movement. What exactly does that campaign look like? Who's leading that? Hmm. Yes, it's been going on for 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 years. Um, is um, the um, and uh, in, it is the um, political movement that surrounds Zeta, um, the uh, La Izquierda Berchale, the uh, let's call it the past patriotic left, that uh, for, for years they, they try to uh, uh, promote their own vision of the the violence at the international level. Uh, they have. Uh, for decades, very uh, strong links with the Sinn Féin, uh, but um, uh, but uh, now that um, uh, ETA uh, is, is is weak and is uh, is made a decision to uh, to uh, lay down his, his arms, we we seen and acceleration perhaps of the initiatives by this political movement at the international level. So we see that uh, members of this movement, politicians from the Bildu political party, they're going to the European Parliament, to Westminster and other places, and they're exporting their vision of the conflict. So, uh, so they're promoting an international narrative that legitimizes ETAs uh, violence um, and this is something that that victims organizations are concerned about and so why uh, like not why are they concerned about well what have they uh, what have they done with this concern uh, and what role have they have they taken in developing a counter or an alternative narrative to this mm. so basically they're doing a, a lot of work on uh, transmitting and disseminating their testimonies to the widest possible audience. So this is uh, described and seen as countering violent uh, extremism. But is uh, for them is also a way to do some pedagogic work to explain. 
to others some very simple truths. Stuff like, like the fact that most of the past have rejected etasterism over the last 40 years. Um, you know, claims that are very basic um, to someone who is from the region, but they, they get lost abroad because people know very little about Basque countries, politics, and history. And the problem is that because of this partial ignorance, um, well, international observers, they tend to see the violence in Basque country from the perspective of other conflicts, um, especially Northern Ireland, uh, even if there are fundamental differences between the two contexts. So I, I describe this as a sort of battle of narratives uh, that they're being played out at the international stage. And I, I argue that this is a battle that victims' organizations feel that they are losing because they do not have the resources that their adversaries possess. And so going back to our initial discussion about um, counterterrorism at an EU level, has the EU helped the victims groups out at all or is they have they taken a role in this? Yeah, yeah, they've, they've been very, very supportive, uh, especially within the framework of the run uh, for those listeners who don't know ab ab about this this platform. Uh, this is a radicalization awareness network and it's a group that it was set up by the European Commission. Uh, they invited some experts and practitioners uh, to, the, to, the, to this network just to exchange best practices in counter-radicalization. So that, that's been a platform uh, through which uh, Spanish victim groups have uh, uh, well, as I said, publicize their, you know, their, their situation and the experiences of their of their members. And you mentioned a couple of times the comparison with Northern Ireland, and you've said that there are significant differences in the conflict. What are these differences? Well, a key difference, and this is something that has been emphasized by victims' associations, is that Basque Country is not a divided society. Um, so we don't see two, two divided um, communities um, who both have their own paramilitary groups uh, enacting violence on, 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 the, other, on the other communities. Uh, what, what we had in Basque Country, they argue, is a terrorist organization that had uh, they had a political goal uh, that was supported and, and embraced by a political movement, but the vast majority of, of Basque were against the, the violence, regardless of what they thought about their political goals. Um, and, and most importantly, victims didn't themselves didn't react with violence to the uh, damage that it was inflicted on them. So they, there was no um uh ground root uh bottom up group uh being created uh by basque in order to to fight to fight eta one of the one of the things when you look at the comparison with northern ireland and one of the key debates in the post conflict northern ireland is this debate about who are the victims is that debate going on uh, in relation to ETA? Uh, is there, is there a competitive victimhood? Um, yeah, that's uh, one of, of the claims I, I made in the, in the piece, that, that we see in this sort of competitive victimhood uh, dynamic uh, being played out in the, in the past context. So big victims um, organizations are very concerned about the, the attempt by the past patriotic left to dilute the boundaries of victimhood by including in this category um, members of ETA were uh, killed by uh, the Spanish police um, uh, during their, their operations, so maybe who were um, who, who were uh, affected by uh, their own explosives when they were operating them. Um, these sort of, of situations, um, or these sort of categories of, of victims that they feel they shouldn't be included in this, this notion of, of victimhood. And they argue that, uh, that this movement are uh, broadening, broadening uh, this uh, label precisely to stretch the concept and to dil dilute its strength 
uh, within Basque society. So they are, yeah, they're really worried about these these moves. And overall, like while we've concentrated a bit on uh, on victims as a whole, and um, one of the key contributions in of this piece is in relation to the counter narrative and alternative narrative literature as a whole do you see other victims groups uh, in relation to other conflicts uh, victims of other terrorist groups do you see them engaging in uh, in this counter narrative field uh there's been quite a lot of work on in, in this field in the, in the last few years um I think there's been a realization by national governments that bringing the victims in could be quite effective in their CVE work. I mean, uh, you look at it from from uh, from outside, uh, one perhaps could argue that there are instrumental reasons behind this uh, this contribution uh, that that victims are are making. Um, but I think there is um, a subsidiary uh, benefit to that. Uh, maybe that's not what governments were thinking, but it's still something that is a positive trend, uh, which is that these groups are being uh, are receiving uh, more attention. Uh, they're getting um, more uh, in. Well, they're 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 being put on the spotlight, and the situation that individual victims are going through years after they suffer their victimization is being prioritized, um, and that's that's uh, I feel uh, is a, a very positive development. So this this article was looking at in a way you could classify it as counter-terrorism or counter-extremism uh, from non-state actors. However, you also, in your in your other piece that we're going to focus on, examining deterrence and backlash effects in counter-terrorism, you focus on uh, the effects of counter-terrorism by state actors. Could you give the listeners just an introduction or uh, about the influence of, of uh, behind this article and what you were trying to achieve with it alongside uh, your co-author Alberto Vidal Diaz. Yeah, yeah. This article was inspired by a very interesting piece by Gary Lafree and Laura Dugan and, and, and Court, where they they look at a series of British government strategies in Northern Ireland. So they wanted to see if those interventions reduce or increase violence. So they got data and worked with a series hazard model, which is a sort of survival analysis technique. And they did that in order to assess the impact of these counter-terror measures. So I thought that was a very interesting approach. Uh, I wanted to replicate that design, but this time looking at ETA and six government initiatives in a period that goes from 1977 to 2010, so that's about 40 years almost, uh, because I find that replication is something that we don't do enough in the field, but in other disciplines like psychology and criminology, it's very popular because it allows us to determine whether certain findings are persuasive or not based on whether they are replicated in other contexts. So whether so, so it allows us to see whether something that is reported in one particular article for one specific context uh, is something that is happening in other areas, in other parts of the world. Um, and and that's, that's essential because it will it, it allow us to know whether this is a convincing argument, and this is something that we should uh, uh, put more more interest in. So, because I wanted to engage in replication, um, um, and I knew that um, Alberto Vidal uh, was an, 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 an a statistician, he's an expert on survival uh, analysis, I thought uh, he'd be the, the perfect uh, co-author for, for the piece, so I called him to, to see if he, he was interested, and, and he was, and we decided to work together. And so, what is, what is this, um, what are the questions that were being asked in relation to this? So, and what was the data that you were using? Mm -hmm. Well, so we got uh, 40 years of data from the Global Terrorism Database from, from GTD, and we clean the data, um, we make uh, some 
additions to it from other sources, from uh, Spanish government uh, reports, also from uh, an, another another book called uh, Vidas Rotas or Bro Broken Lives. Uh, that it, it is uh, it was uh, um, a compilation of the lives of Spanish victims uh, of uh, of terrorism. Uh, so and we use that that data. Um, to uh, study the broader question of deterrence and backlash in, in counterterrorism. So these are two classic criminological concepts. So deterrence is the principle at, at heart of criminal law. It is the assumption that individuals are rational actors who would try to maximize personal gain and minimize cost. So they will alter their behavior based on cost-benefit calculations. So if there was a higher chance of being apprehended of uh, the punishment would, would be harsher, then that would discourage uh, them from breaking the law. So in contracts, uh, backlash is the understanding that certain measures introduced to decrease crime can actually have counterproductive effects and lead instead to an increase in crime. Okay, so we took those two ideas and we applied it to counterterrorism. So there we saw that we can have positive effects, a reduction of terrorist attacks, because the measure acts as a deterrent. We could have no effects if there is no significant change on the levels of violence, but we could also have backlash, where the state's repressive action leads to retaliation and an increase of terrorism violence. So this is the notion that greater state repression can exacerbate political violence because of the grievances it generates. Okay, it's, it's a, um, it, it is a classic action-reaction dynamic, okay, where a repressive measure by a government can antagonize the community where the militants operate, and then it's used by them, by the terrorist group, to rally people to their cause. So it actually serves to strengthen the state's adversary. So in a nutshell, that hardline policies do not always succeed and can even backfire, can even backfire. So this is the, the sort of, uh, of of concepts that that we wanted to test with the data we had. And so, what did you find? Well, what we found in our analysis is that well, there is evidence of both that there were initiatives that had a deterrent effect, other had a backlash effect, but we were interested on the backlash. Okay, um, one one specific measure that we thought was very uh, that deserved attention uh, was uh, the, the example of the creation in the 1980s by members of the Spanish government of a clandestine paramilitary group called the GAL. Um, they created that to operate in France with intention to assassinate ETA members. And the reason why they were doing that is that during those years, the French Basque country was a safe haven for ETA. Um, the French authorities were not collaborating with the Spanish because they were still not sure about the democratic credentials of the new regime. So what mattered for us was that the formation of the guard was not only illegal and illegitimate, but also it was a decision that was clearly counterproductive. So what we argued is that it strengthened the resolve of ETA supporters and it was a great propaganda tool for them. It was something that they exploited to get new recruits. So we could see evidence in the data of this classic action-reaction uh, dynamic that I mentioned before. So the state is provoked, it overreacts, it loses a moral high ground, and the militants receive a surge of support and are reinforced. And was this uh, was this similar to the findings of Lafrey Dugan and colleagues, or was it different? Well, the literature in this area shows uh, mixed results. Uh, there has been evidence of both um, both uh, deterrent and backlash uh, effects, which I don't think uh, it should necessarily su surprise us, because uh, 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 some measures could uh, lead to uh, different contexts. Uh, sorry, different results depending on, on, the, on the context. Uh, what I found it was important uh, with regards to the sort of contribution that we made to the literature is that sometimes we see measures 
that lead to more violence in the short term, but they actually can be effective in the long term. Okay, I'm going to use an example to to, to add a, a bit more 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 uh, phrase to that. So I was saying before how southern France was a safe safe haven for for ETA, but this changed in the mid 1980s when finally the French government decided to cooperate with the Spanish. So they signed an agreement in 1984. Uh, it's called uh, the Castellana Agreements. And soon afterwards, the French police started arresting and extraditing ETA terrorists from their territory. And this is really a crucial development. I mean, all experts agree that French-Spanish cooperation is one of the key factors that led to ETA's eventual defeat. But if we looked at the short term, as we did in, the, in our model, the effects were actually negative because it resulted in a wave of ETA attacks to French interests in Spain. We saw bombings in French banks, French car dealerships, and many others. So the same initiative can lead to a short-term backlash, but in the long term, eventually, it acts as a deterrent. But, and this is important, in the model, we could only pick the increase, not the long-term effect, because that long-term effect was confounded by other factors. So you see a decline, but you cannot really determine how much of it is due to this French-Spanish collaboration because of all the other interventions that were going on over the years that obscure the effect of this collaboration. Okay, so what we did is to use this paper to show how these serious hazard models, they can't really be very useful. Uh, they can, I mean, um, I, uh, I think this, this, this is a, a great, uh, potentially very fruitful approach to examining the effectiveness of counterterrorism. But they're not perfect. They're not perfect because they, they, they do not deal well with long-term effects and they cannot really tease out the impact of one particular intervention when you have several initiatives occurring at the same time. So I felt that the article can be seen as a sort of showcase of the strengths of this approach uh, but it was also a, a critique of the model. Yeah, I think this is a, a really good good point to raise uh, at this point of the discussion in this uh, in relation to this article. This notion that it's very difficult to to assess the long term effects using this methodology, and also to see when there are separate initiatives that are happening close in time to each other, which initiative, if I, if any, are actually having the effect. And the one thing that sort of came to mind for me, one of the many things that came to mind for me when reading this article was when you're looking at this, you're looking at it from the uh, counterterrorism from the state actors. You're not necessarily taking into account what might be happening internally within the group, within the organizations at a time yeah. as well. So potentially future researchers um, and and in the in the article, you're very clear about the strengths and weaknesses about the about the research as you have been here. Um, potentially, future researchers could, if they have reliable and valid information about uh, what was happening internally within the groups and initiatives within the organisations, could see if if by combining that with our CT knowledge, uh, if we can see see if anything internally or externally was having the effect as well. That, that's a great point, John. I, I think um, that's, that's a, a fundamental uh, critique, that there are, there are elements, there are uh, developments that, um, uh, that we can't really uh, take into consideration unless they are included in the model. But the more variables you have in the, in the model, the less effective, the less uh, effective it is as as a uh, as a model. The less parsimonious explanation uh, it, it represents. Uh, you could actually include those considerations, like internal developments within uh, militant organizations, by including them as control variables within the model. But the issue is the one that I just mentioned, is that if you start uh, including a large number of variables, then it becomes very unwieldy and, and is uh, increasingly difficult to interpret. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's it's one of the things as researchers we constantly have to be aware of is we have to be aware of the as well as the strengths but the weaknesses in the methodologies and what we can actually draw from this and i think that by 
putting this forward and i really enjoyed the article i found it really interesting and especially from the the methodological approach that you were that you were applying but to use it as a as a springboard for future research utilizing this uh this method you uh utilizing these theories and potentially in in other cases as well uh it's uh vitally important um the way i finish up with with all of uh, my interviewees is to ask about your broad general under uh beliefs about the the area of terrorism and counterterrorism and extremism studies at the moment and generally terrorism studies as many people will call it do you feel that uh do you feel that it's there's a stagnation in terrorism research at the moment or uh, or are we um are we living in a golden golden age as uh, as andrew silk's article um andrew silk and jennifer smith peterson's article was asking yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, that was an, an interesting article, wasn't it? Um, I, I perhaps um, uh, put myself maybe in, in between. Um, uh, I'm, I'm generally I'm pretty positive about the field. Uh, um, I think terrorism studies is in a pretty healthy state. Uh, I believe that the explosion of research that we witnessed after 9/11 is being generally very positive for its evolution. Um, I mean, for a study, it's a far more visible field. I mean, I don't think that's a bad thing. No. Um, those who work well before 9-11 on, on these issues, they, they always like to remind us that research on terrorism was an academic backwater. I mean, no, I mean that was, it, was, it, it was far from, from being a, you know, a high-profile uh, line of inquiry. But now it's one of the liveliest fields in the social sciences. We have many more people doing well-funded work uh, on a lot of different areas, uh, stuff like the causes of, of violence, the evolution of, of terrorist organizations, the impact of, of terrorism, the impact that, that violence has on, on a society. I, I mean, I guess you could say that it's true that there's been quite a lot of, of, of reinventing the wheel. Uh, maybe you could make the argument that researchers in the field should be a bit more familiar with the classical works on terrorism and political violence, but I, I felt that that's not really a major issue, and I, I think by and large, uh, the, the field is, uh, is, is, is doing well, is, is likely there there been quite a lot of interesting contributions in, in the last decade, and there's been significant amount of progress, I would say. And where do you feel the that the this area of study should go from here? Why are, where where what are the next big questions to ask? Um well yeah, that's a hard question to yeah. answer. <laughs> Sorry. But it's you know but it, it's actually but it's a, it's a very good one and it's related to um another point um I was pondering um a, a while ago. Um when you said that, that you wanted to, to do this this podcast, um, and and you know when I take I took a couple of steps uh, uh, back and, and, and tried to, to look at, at the field as, as it is at, at the moment, um, and and your question is interesting because it relates to what I wanted to say, and I think I, because what I think is one of the dangers uh, for the field at this current state is a specialization over specialization okay so we've seen this massive growth in recent years uh but what i'm concerned about is that we've seen that terrorism studies may eventually become a field that is self-contained okay so it's a subfield that is close off to the progress made by research on other forms of political violence okay and uh, maybe you could make the argument that this is happening already i mean this is what mike boyle argued in a, in a special issue he edited for tpb uh, when was that? Maybe 2012. Uh, you know the, the, the yeah, one? Yeah, I, I know the one. I think it was around 2011, 2012. 2011, 2012, yeah. So he was basically saying that political violence has been fragmented into highly specialized you know, studies that look at different types of political violence. And, and, and these fields themselves, they are sort of divided uh, theoretically and methodologically. So... Um, so we see that there's, there's, there's been this balkanization, this fragmentation. And this is not, I mean, I'm not saying that this is particular to terrorism studies. This is something that happens across the board. It's typical of modern academia. And it has its benefits. Uh, it's not necessarily wrong, 100% uh, wrong. 
Uh, but I, I think that it can act as an obstacle for the cross-pollination of ideas. Um, and I feel that terrorism studies could do very well with insights, not from other bodies of literature in political violence necessarily, or only, but also further beyond from other disciplines. Um, so uh, we've, seen a, we've seen a bit of that because there's been more funding. We've seen lots of new contributions by scholars from other fields like economics or computer science or, or medicine, uh, but they are transient authors. That's, that's how um, Andrew Sip described them. I, that's, a, that's a great way of putting it. So that there are people who write a piece or two because it is fashionable, because terrorism is something that, you know, you could get funding if you, you talk about it, and then they leave. Um, but I, so I don't think this is the solution. I mean, if the study of terrorism is to grow theoretically and conceptually, I think it needs to be open. It needs to assimilate the insights from literature that's been developed somewhere else. And this refers back to your question. I think just in order to determine what uh, the next big question should be, we need to be more open and start looking at the work by other people uh, in other areas are, are doing um, stuff like social movements, for, for example. Uh, you, you just mentioned, you mentioned Sarah Marsden. She's been, you know, she's been working with with uh, that, that sort of theoretical framework. She's a great uh, advocate for for that 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 type of, of approach, and and I'm, I'm I I think she's, she's very right. I think just by uh, introducing more closely this type of literature, it will allow us to uh, to discuss some new questions that at, at the moment we are not engaging. And I think this this goes to the point about what you were trying to achieve with your with your article examining deterrence and bias. You were drawing on uh, criminal, the criminological literature, uh, and when you see people like Gary Lefree and Laura Dugan, they're drawing on their crim- criminological background. I think we were in danger of uh, going into our own terrorism sil- study silo there a few years ago. I think, though, that that there have been uh, there has been a concerted effort due to individual researchers as well as groups of researchers to be looking outside the terrorism studies um, and to find out and to to apply exactly what you're what you're saying but i think it's something we have to constantly be aware of uh, and watch out for um but i think that's a perfect way to leave the pod for today javier thanks so much i've really enjoyed our chat today i found it uh, fascinating i find your research really uh really eye-opening and uh and it's the way that you you pose the questions and uh and apply different methodologies and questions and uh to to topics that others have covered before but apply uh, look at it in a new way i think it's it's well worthwhile i think the work that you've done with orla lynch in relation to to victims is something uh is is a topic that others are ignoring uh the role of victims and uh we've talked about it here today but for anyone who's interested in uh, in your work on that there's Javier's published a lot on victims with Orla Lynch and others um but thank you for for talking to me today thank you to Jamie Murray as always for editing today's podcast and um be sure to uh, to follow us on twitter at t-e-r-c-u-e-l and to check out our website www.uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C and you'll find out everything there about our research in the centre, about upcoming guests, about our book series with IB Taurus and so much more. So thank you very much and see you all next week. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's discussion with Javier. Uh, be sure to tune in next week when we're... Uh, when we're talking to his former colleague from St. Andrews, who's now at Puk Menes in Brazil, uh, Dr. Rashmi Singh. In that discussion, we'll be talking to Rashmi about how the work of E.H. Carr, Walter Reich, Rashad Khalidi, and Anne-Marie Oliver and Paul Steinberg have influenced her career. But predominantly, we'll be focusing on our own work, looking at a preliminary typology mapping pathways to leaving and innovation by modern jihadist groups the discourse and practice of heroic resistance in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, specifically focusing on Hamas, and counterterrorism in India, an ad hoc response to an enduring and variable threat. It's definitely well worth a listen, so I hope that you can tune in next week. Okay, until then, goodbye.